Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Ooh, ooh, you're trapped, dazed, lost in a world without time where colors collide in kaleidoscopic patterns. That doesn't have anything to do with today's show, which is the nose. We're going to talk about Mrs. Davis, which is about AI. Uh, Mrs. Davis is the name for sort of an overarching AI that kind of runs everything. And then there's a nun. <laughs> this makes total sense, I promise. There's a nun who's going to take M- Mrs. Davis down. We'll, I, it, we'll explain it on the other side of the news. We'll also talk about the writer's strike. You know what the writers are asking for in their minimum bar- bargaining agreement, among other things? A ban on AI writing scripts. It all ties together. And is the word ladies and ladies and gentlemen, is that a microaggression? We may have time to talk about that, too. That is actually uh, the RogerEbert.com review of uh, Mrs. Davis, our first topic today, set to music. I think that's a new thing. They're probably using AI, which would be ironic, um, and none of that's true anyway. But um, we are going to talk today about Mrs. Davis. It's on Peacock right now. Uh, it is um, a project, a co-project of Tara Fernandez and Damon Lindelof, you know, the latter from things like Lost and... I don't know. Maybe it's because of the third doctor in the show today, but I feel like I sound a little bit like Jerry Lewis. You know him from the shows like Lost, from Lost and The Leftovers and Watchmen. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we've watched uh, five or six episodes of that. Uh, and then in the second segment, we'll talk about the writer's strike. Maybe there isn't going to be any Peacock anymore. Maybe there's, well, actually, Peacock will be there because it's just an enormous warehouse full of old NBC material. But uh, meanwhile, writers are from the WGA are taking their future into their hands and uh, fighting back against what they see as fairly oppressive contractual working conditions. We'll explain more about that, what its overall implications are, if we have time. Are terms like ladies and gentlemen um, microaggressions? They may be. So, but not when Jerry Lewis goes, lady! I think that's still okay. I'm not 100% sure, but we'll find out. And we'll find out from our wonderful panel today. Uh, Denisha Dugan, uh, associate professor at Octopus Theatricals. Rich Holland, principal at CoLab, founder at the Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about culture, healthcare, and health equity, and other stuff, too. Other stuff, too, is, I think, part of the log line for episode three of Mrs. Davis. But let's hear a little bit of episode two before we get going. Uh, you're going to hear... Um, 
uh, Betty Gilpin, uh, who plays Simone slash Lizzie, uh, the nun who has undertaken on behalf of all humankind to bring down AI. AI exists in the form of this one super algorithm uh, known in America as Mrs. Davis and known as other things in other countries. And she'll be talking to a guy whose name I can't really pronounce, uh, but he plays JQ, uh, one of the leaders uh, of another, of kind of an underground, literally underground resistance against Mrs. Davis. Here we go. Two weeks ago, the algorithm pinged every user in Nevada, California, and New Mexico. It pinged them a photo, a photo of you. It's been years since the algorithm did a wide blast to locate a non-user. It only does it when some poor drongo is about to be chosen one. Chosen one? Yeah. The Big D force feeds hero's journey to its network. You know, you're special. You're the one. Algorithms love cliches. And there's no cliche bigger than the quest for the Holy Grail. Most overused MacGuffin ever. Not to mention pretend. But if the grill's not real, why send me after it? Somewhere out there known as a massive server farm. But no algorithm with this power and reach can operate at this level without people to maintain it. Grail quests. How it finds those people. This server farm is the mothership nun. If we can find it, we can shut it down. If we can't, well, then it's just a matter of time before every person on earth does whatever it asks them to. One of the things I like about that character is he addresses Betty Gilpin, who is Sister Simone, as nun. <laughs> that, is, that is the only name he apparently knows for her. So um, we have a lot to talk about. I should say that the big star of the series is, in fact, Betty Gilpin. You might have loved her on Glow and some other stuff. Got to represent the A6, 860 here. She's from northwestern Connecticut. Her father, Jack, has been on this show, and I've done stuff with him. He's an actor as well, a uh, very renowned actor. Uh, was on is still on the Gilded Age, I think, uh, assuming the writer's strike doesn't take that out. Uh, the other two major stars are uh, Jake McDorman. Oh, by the way, Betty Gilmore also went to school. Uh, Betty Gilpin went to school very near here in Windsor, Connecticut at Loomis J.P. Anyway, uh, uh, Jake McDorman is Wiley, who is uh, her childhood love, the childhood love of Lizzie slash Sister Simone, and also apparently have something something to do with that self-same resistance. And Andy McQueen as Jay, although within the, within the reality of the series, he is Jesus. I mean, he's like really Jesus. But he's like make out Jesus. He will like make out with you. Um, and if you become a nun, he'll, he might do more. Um, that's all I'm prepared to say at this time. So um, as I say, this is an eight-episode series. We're anywhere from four, five, six Episodes and the sixth episode dropped last night. I tried to watch it and make it all the way through. But so Lindsay Lee Wallace, make me stop talking and start talking <laughs> about about Mrs. Davis. I, I don't know. I mean, begin wherever you want to because this is a very kind of amorphous project, as Lindelof jams tend to be. Well, I'm I'm shocked by the revelation that Betty Gilpin is a is a nepotism baby, but um, she is definitely the the saving grace of the show. So it, it's it's. Um, it's okay to me. And I was really trying to do some kind of some kind of Episcopalian make out Jesus portmanteau there and I couldn't make it happen. So I'll just I'll just go with um I was delighted by the wild use of Christianity. Yeah, Episcopalians don't make out with Jesus. They have cocktails with them. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um uh, yes, definitely. Um and I 
So I, as somebody with no religious background who found myself suddenly immersed in Episcopalianism, this show really captured what that was like for me, just in terms of the the imagery being so strange and uh, kind of arresting, which I think was part of our conversation in the email thread leading up to this about how um, the main selling point of the show was sort of just that it's like really something to look at. The colors are very vibrant. The set pieces are kind of incredible. Um, in terms of like the plotline, I sort of felt like it was just kind of a bunch of, you know, what if AI, what if a conspiracy? And in some instances, that kind of thing falls apart for me. In this instance, I felt like everyone's performances and the arresting visuals kind of just held it together, even if it didn't say much. It was just like a sparkly collage of timely topics and symbols, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, and there's also a sense in which they're they're letting their fondness for other kinds of IP show. I mean, I really do feel there's a bunch of black-clad Germans at the beginning of the series who they just are the guys from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> I don't know how they aren't. Uh, and there is a kind of Wes Anderson homage going on in, in the resistance. So Tanisha Dugan, I don't know, maybe either build on what Lindsay Lee Wallace said or tear it down or you do you about Mrs. Davis. I'll do me. Uh, I actually am going to piggyback or jetpack off of uh, something you just said, Colin, which is that there are a lot of references that I feel are being made. Like there's, I feel like I'm seeing Monty Python. I feel like I'm seeing Matrix and Matrix and Snowpiercer. I feel like all, you know, packaged around this kind of absurd comedy, which feels very Monty Python-ish to me as well. I mean, I think that that to me is the, that and Betty Gilpin feels to me like the saving grace of the project. It's sort of like, the Easter eggs of your cultural context that you can find along the way, the Easter eggs of the sort of social themes that are gnawing at you today that you can connect with. And Betty Gilpin, who seems through her storytelling, pull it all together into something that's remotely cohesive. Um, you know, I, 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 if you're one who doesn't, need a narrative and is looking for like <laughs> what's happening around the corner you know it's like a it's a vibe but I am like a sucker for like relationship stories and I'm still hoping you know the central relationship which is G which is you know Lizzie well, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a thruple it's kind of a thruple <laughs> It is. A, you're right. I They're leaving room for Jesus. <laughs> but I would much rather be in a thruple, a polygamous story with Jesus, than you know some of the zany, you know, antics that seem to be happening along the way. I think, by the way, you just said something perfect about this, which is it is kind of about what's around the corner. What's the next thing that's going to happen? It isn't about really from beginning. It's not like the Iliad or something, you know, it's really about like the next thing that's going to happen. I think that is perfectly expressed. All right, Mr. Holland, you have the floor now and you may do with it as you please. Very cool. I'm about to start a network called ADHD TV <laughs> because I think that this, uh, good luck getting writers. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you need writers for ADHD TV. Then it's perfect. You know, squirrels in the room. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, this was fun to look at. So let's start with, with what really worked about it, because that's what they told me to do in high school. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really fun to look at. Um, it was all these colors and all this sparkliness. And um, and it was, I think we were referring to, uh, in Sleeper, there was this, this machine called the, the Orgasmatron. Uh, that just put everybody into this kind of 
happy num space. And this does a really good job of that. Um, and uh, um, I enjoyed looking at it. Uh, I didn't work too hard to follow what was going on. Um, as soon as they started doing this thing in, in this series where uh, they would take a thread for about um, five, six minutes or so, and then just kind of drop it and move on to something else. Um, after about two, three episodes of that, um, I was okay with that. I was okay with uh, with um, television as haiku. Um, <laughs> it it kind of worked for me in a lot of ways. Um, the The disappointing part was uh, there's some relationships that really want to get going here. Um, there's uh, I got as far as episode four, and there's this sort of weird triangle that might happen uh, with Jesus and um, well, who I didn't realize was actually Jesus. I thought it was just like, you know, a manner of speaking, oh, Jesus, but no, apparently it is. And um, an and old, old flame uh, that the main character had. And I'm just wondering really how they come together in a kind of um, beautiful way but i don't well, know i mean she's seeing there. two guys it's not like they're gonna do some ford maddox ford thing where they the three of them are not going to get together i don't think right i don't know why not i mean <laughs> it could be around the corner that could be jesus was all about loving everybody so. <laughs> that's, that's what it's and about there are religious sects that embrace that so like yes yes we 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 intuited your spelling yeah i mean in a way um, it's interesting, too, because I think what several of you, maybe all of you are suggesting, too, is, well, like what Tanisha says, whatever you bring to the table, you get to kind of, I don't know, pick up the pieces on the table that are kind of meaningful to you. So, yeah, if you've never seen Monty Python, you're not going to think about that. I am, but I've been watching this with someone who was brought up Catholic. And, and in Catholicism, the notion that nuns marry Jesus is a very explicit thing. They are the brides of Christ. That is what is happening. And it's not really treated as some kind of allegory. <laughs> they are marrying Jesus. So uh, I've never seen anything before that said, well, like if you really played that out, <laughs> you know, what would that be like? But I mean, they are kind of doing that in a way that is either delightful or uncomfortable making or, but you know, uh, Lindsay, I think another thing that Rich was is sort of getting at too is you really would like there to be some stakes, maybe some real stakes, you know, and, and I, I mean, I will sort of spoil a little something, but I won't explain anything about it. At a certain point, a character's head actually explodes, like the person's head explodes not like a little bit either. It like really explodes. And I just like, it just doesn't really, you know, that should really upset me. <laughs> but Lindsay, I feel like that whatever level of reality has been created here doesn't really allow for us to have, make huge investments in outcomes or characters. I think that that's a fair point. And I definitely, the head explosion, I actually jumped and audibly went, oh my God, which was, I'm, I guess, exactly what they were hoping to elicit from me. And, you know, I'm sorry to make out Jesus for my blasphemy. But um, I think that you're right that it's, it's not like a story forward type of show where you're invested in the relationship dynamics between the characters so much as it is like, how is this, this bizarre plot going to unspool itself? Um, and definitely... I generally my favorite kinds of stories are the ones that make me invested in the relationships between the people. But every now and then, sort of like the uh, conversation that we've had in the past about media as bombs, B-O-M-B versus bomb, B-A-L-M, 
this kind of is like, it was a balm in a way by just being absurd, not requiring a lot of um, emotional investment and just sort of being something bonkers to watch and, and wait to find out what was going to happen. Uh, but I definitely get how that wouldn't be your cup of tea if you were looking for something where the relationships were going to be fleshed out and fully explored. Right. I, the Catholic person that I'm watching this with is very squirmy about <laughs> about this that particular relationship. Uh, it was like maybe a little, a little bit too fine a, a point on it. But, you know, uh, Tunisia, I think we should talk a little bit more about the acting here. I mean, act, Betty Gilpin, I think we can all agree, is acting her ass off here. And there's a way in which I think Lindelof, and I, I'll blame Lindelof for anything I think is wrong with this, because I think Tara <laughs> Fernandez may have even brought him a very different kind of project. But I think he asks his his leading actors to do a lot. You know, I mean, Carrie Coon had a lot of work to do in The Leftovers. Um, and it's... and. and Ultimately, her job is to take something that seems, I think, to all four of us, a little on the cartoonish side and mm-hmm. make it real and make it have some real flesh and some real pain. And like, I think the person who's doing that besides her, he's a much smaller role, but Ben Chaplin plays this character named Arthur Schrodinger, who has a cat, but isn't that Schrodinger? But like when Chaplin's on the screen, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know. You can sort of believe his part of it, kind of, uh, except, well, anyway, you, but you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think you're right. And for me, I'm, there's a part of me that's like, you know, the, the, we, we're talking about these relationships that are like not really fulfilling, you know? And I think ultimately that's textual, not uh, like, I think it's, it's on purpose. And because, Betty's acting is so strong. We're sort of like rooting for this relationship between Lizzie and and Wiley or Lizzie and Jesus that I don't even know if it's actually on the page. Um, and and to that point, I there's a part of me that wonders, like if the writers, as we get through the season, if the writers are starting to be self-aware of the the sort of lack of threads you know the the head exploding parts felt meta to me right like it felt as much like we have i've been on this ride with you and i don't really know where i'm going and my head's about to explode yes and so like you know the writer giving us this like moment to sort of i don't know erase part of what's happened prior you know um there there feels to me like there's a lot of self-awareness in the work as we get deeper into the season that I'm curious if the acting can continue to sort of uh, hide for us as it did sort of early on when we're still sort of like pulling, the, as you expect when you start a series, you're like, okay, I'm putting it together. Or this is brand new to me. I have no idea who these people are or why they're here. I'm going to learn. And then I think once you get past episode four, you're like, okay, where, where are we? Are we just here? Oh, we're just we're just here, and we're gonna be here and surprise. It's like a it's like a um, a funhouse in a lot of ways. Right. So, Rich, you know, one thing that we wound up emailing a lot about this week, um, and it's gonna there's no way we're getting through the second segment without talking quite a bit about it is AI. But AI yeah. is, I mean, the elevator pitch here is a nun fights a super AI. I mean, that's you know the logline sort of for this series. But there's a way in which Mrs. Davis maybe isn't. I don't know. She's certainly not a, like a Bond villain AI. She's kind of just makes everything too easy for everybody, right? But maybe that's a pretty good meta, to use Denise's term, comment too. That's the real problem with AI. It seems to make things easy. 
That that's exactly the problem with AI, and and I think that um, that that there's a piece about this that feels like it's the commentaries about AI are really made from the perspectives of like you know like the the characters from Hogan's Heroes. This is all about the French Resistance in a lot of ways. Um, these the writers specifically in this um, have given us a taste of what writing will be like in the AI universe. Um, uh, fractured um, uh, and without any real depth in relationship. It's just the gloss of relationship. And that actually works really, really well uh, for me in, in this narrative thus far. The only character that I feel uh, is real, and I suspect that I'm going to get disappointed by the eighth season to find out that she's not real, <laughs> you know, is, uh, is none. Mm -hmm. um, uh, every time we explore a character, it turns into this like little shorthand of a character. And um, and it's done to me with with deliberate intention. Um, the look of the film has that that kind of look of AI. Um, I've been looking at images lately and I'm like, what is there's something a little wrong about this, and I can't put my finger on what it is. And I look a little closer and a little closer, and that's what it is. It's not real. And um and this entire series is is developed with um, in a way that feels like a bunch of input has been put in that this is what a car looks like. This is what a headset looks like. And it's played back to us um, in that kind of uh, um, data loaded way. Uh, that aspect of it is kind of really smart. Um, just wish that the writing uh, helped us recognize the contrast um, between what's real and what's not real in a better way. Um, I thought we should be more deliberate about that. So we're about to talk about writing. I do. Lindsay or Tanisha, are your, is your head about to explode with something you need to say? Uh, if so, I mean, we have time and room. I'll, I'll, this is what I'll say. I'm, you know, this is probably a repeat of an earlier point, but as we're like talking more about this project, I can't quite tell if what we're saying is actually the intent of our takeaway for this, or if we are putting it on top of this thing that we've watched, you know? And, and then I'm like, well, is that the brilliance of it? Because, you know, Siri, AI, these things have a kind of soft but insidious hand. And is that like intentional? And if that's intentional, then that's quite, that's quite remarkable, but I don't quite believe that it's intentional. And maybe, and, and again, you know, round and round and round she goes, Maybe that is in fact the 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 point that they're trying to make, but I'm not. But I'm not quite sure it's as uh, intentionally brilliant as our conversation has has drawn it to be. Well, I have Harold. I, mean, I have Harold Bloom in the studio, right, sitting right here, and he is uh, able to rule on <laughs> questions of uh, ways in which creators and consumers interact with prose and text. So um, I'll get a ruling from him, Lindsay. Yeah, I heard you piping up. Oh, just um, I think that to the point of, you know, it, if it is if it is the goal, because I agree, Tanisha, that it's not even clear, but if it is the goal to depict something that seems as though it could have been created by AI, then part of the conversation that always comes up with AI is whether it has, you know, the ability to capture humanity and whether it has the ability to capture that, you know, whatever the spark is that makes a story feel like it belongs in its context and relates to our emotions. And if that's what's happening here, then it's sort of, you know, like you're saying, an, an experiment in meaning making. Can we make something out of this collection of 
sparkly nonsense that feels to us like a cohesive story. And if we can do that when we watch it, then does it even matter if it didn't give us that on its own? Um, which is kind of insidious. Yeah, yeah. But it's a really interesting question, too. Okay, we'll, we'll wrap here. I just do want to say one thing here, which I have a, kind of a problem with Lindelof generally. When I first started watching Lost, like a lot of people, I was kind of intrigued, you know, for a season or two. And then it struck me that his technique as a writer is when he started to get confused by his own work. He would do that kind of Bugs Bunny Looney Tune things where you, you go and you paint a wall, or, or you paint a door on the side of the wall and then Bugs Bunny you know, opens the door that he just painted because it now works and he walks into a whole new realm and there's other people there, whatever. You know? and, and I think maybe this is a way to solve that problem because that's basically, I mean, this is kind of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Uh, it's like a really good, incredibly expensive live action Bugs Bunny cartoon. But to everybody's point who's spoken the last, you know, maybe we're watching a Bugs Bunny cartoon and just trying to be real smart about it, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not going to hurt us. All right. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the writer strike. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. We are back with Tanisha Dugan, Rich Holland, uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace, and we are about to talk about the writer strike. This is at the stage, um, I believe it's Monday night at midnight, uh, the official end of talks. Uh, the reality is that the uh, WGA, the Writers Guild of America, walked away from those talks. Typically, they run out the clock, uh, but they walked away hours before that because there was no resolution in sight. The two sides apparently are pretty dramatically far apart. Um, so this is going to uh, affect and probably has already affected it first shows in which the writing is turned in on the same day that it is used. Uh, that would be things like the Jimmy Kimmel Show or um, in, in some cases Saturday well, Saturday Night Live, stuff like that. All those kinds of shows, they're going to be shut down if they're not already. John Oliver probably too. Um, all those kinds of things. And then sort of one by one, uh, other things will be affected by it. We can talk a little bit as we go along if we want to uh, about how and why that will happen. Uh, but uh, we are seeing the, the anyway the, the early stages of it. Uh, and I think it's also kind of a moral referendum on – 
the way entertainment is kind of bought and sold and processed and distributed these days and who the big players are. So uh, with that in mind, um, I don't know. Rich, do you want to get us going? I, I know you've got a lot of thoughts about this. Is there a particular direction you, you want to get going in in the first place? Well, I think that um, my thoughts about this are, are two. My thoughts about this are about the ideas of unions in general. Um, my thoughts are also in particular about that sticky point of, around AI to to complete the conversation that to tie to the conversation that we were just having. Um, the idea that uh, that we are at a place where um, I think as a as a society we we tend to have internalized this idea that the invention of the airplane is the invention of the plane crash. And um, and get really anxious about when something new comes to play, and we run through as a society the the same sort of uh, routine of concern, uh, and that concern ends up leading us to some kind of doomsday scenario at at all times. Um, and there is a doomsday scenario that's been played out uh, around all sort of. Um, tech advancements and we've yet to see it deliver that you know uh we ultimately end up seeing uh the jobs just get redefined and people get reassigned um and uh and that society keeps plugging along the way it always has which is at the on the backs of the marginalized um so there isn't a whole lot that uh, that I'm seeing right now that AI is going to challenge other than the writers that are on the margins. Um, I don't think that there's uh, the AI part of this conversation is a legitimate concern uh, to the folks who are working uh, for John Oliver, <laughs> for yeah, example. Yeah, pro probably not, although we should say that this is part of the conversation. I mean, the, the, it's a, there are a lot of moving pieces in this labor dispute. It's not just about one thing. It's not just about mm -hmm. compensation, although that's in there. The structure of what are called residuals uh, have become important. The length of seasons has become important. For example, everybody working on Mrs. Davis is working on an eight-episode thing. When that's done, frequently they're not even allowed on the set, and they're not allowed to have continued employment and you get your work done, you're done. Uh, that's very different from the days of 22 episode seasons where it was basically a, something close to a year round job. Uh, that's something that else that needs to be addressed. But yeah, AI is right in there. It's right there in the, in the contract negotiations. Uh, WGA is saying that uh, under no circumstances can an AI replace a, a writer's job. A job that was going to be done by a writer cannot be done by AI. They want that in uh, what's called the minimum basic agreement, the MBA contract. So, so yeah, there's something they're, they're worried about. And the, um, the AMPTP, which is the, the wealthy, you know, overlord uh, organization, yeah. uh, has said uh, they countered by offering annual meetings to discuss advancements in technology, <laughs> which seems like something Mrs. Davis would suggest. Why don't we just have a meeting to talk about technology instead of banning me? Anyway, Tanisha, uh, yeah, wh wh where are your thoughts right now? So many things, so many, so many things. Um, one, I'm going to sort of put Pullian threaded and kind of pull in uh, Ed Sheeran a little bit and our, and our transition music in that there's a little bit of uh, figuring out who, who owns what, when. And I think the sort of AI residual sort of structural question is that when the last negotiation went through and they sort of were passive about new media, 
that opened up the door to the peacocks and the the additional streaming threads that were considered new media, even though they were really, you know, production houses and studios, right? That they were essentially the same old thing, um, but operating in this sort of, you know, wild west. And so, you know, yes, you know, Rich, I'm I'm with you that yes, you know, in some ways the the to use your metaphor, the the introduction of the plane also introduced the idea of the plane crash. The 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 guild was burned <laughs> in negotiations three years ago when they were sort of uh lax and open to emergent new future technologies and platforms. Um and it and it cut to the ways in which the, the writer's work and and writing as a as a profession and writing as a profession that is built on apprenticeship and and being in the room and being on location and being on set that being able to watch the sausage get made is how you are able to make better sausage right and you know Colin you said in your intro that this you know was a very much about the way in which entertainment works. But I actually think because this is a union conversation, it is a reflection of, of our general work life and the, and the conversations, the larger, broader conversation is about the worker versus the, the overseer, which is essentially an American conversation that has been at you know the center of our lives, not just our work lives, but our lives since it started. This may be the way in which human beings organize themselves across humanity, but it is the thing that we are talking about today. Who gets to decide how we live? And work is 80% of our life. Um, and if capitalism and late stage capitalism is the definer of our work life, we're all in a bit of trouble. So how do we maintain a system that encourages collaboration and collectivism, which is what cre the creative arts do when done right? And the AI is just you know, a version of building this thing in which you don't need the collective, in which you can say, here's, the, here's actually the framework of the story we've built it we're not artists but we've built it and we think it will do a thing now we'd love you to just go into a room and flesh it out right um that's i think you know the artistic sense that they're fighting for but but the structural how do we make this thing together um in a way that pays people unlike differently than uber right, right. <laughs> differently than a gig economy Right. And that that is a problem. I think uh, there are actually even day rates for comedy writers these days that have come come up. I mean, this is, you know, uh, like just total work for hire kind of stuff and and ways to sort of break the old format of the way that you brought something to fruition. You'll hear in the conversations a lot about, for example, mini rooms. As I understand this, this is, um, you know, you, you maybe pre-production, you get a minimum number of writers together and have them kind of break out stories and stuff like that. And then, then you just chase them all away. They're not part of this. They've done their little part. Uh, so, yeah. And so, um, Lindsay, I think another thing that we sort of need to acknowledge is that the landscape has changed. The players have changed. Even the last big strike was 0708. Uh, it's a real different world now. And, and some of the people, some of the entities with whom one deals are entities like Apple 
uh, Apple probably can stand a writer strike for quite some time because Apple has other things that it does, and so does Amazon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, I mean, so to a certain degree, and and I would throw Disney Plus in there. Oh, really? A writer strike? What will we ever do here at Disney Plus? You know, well, we can you know first of all assassinate Ron DeSantis, and then we'll think of something else. Uh, but uh, I mean, there are sort of big companies here that that. I mean, Netflix was going to need some scripts pretty soon, <laughs> but there are other companies that don't, right? And they, they just have, a, I guess what I'm really suggesting is they have a different corporate culture, too. I don't know what a writer means to Apple. Yeah, I mean, I know that um, this also came up when IATSE, which is the the union that represents a lot of the other people who work in film and TV, had their strike vote a couple of years ago, is that when streaming services were introduced there were like leniencies built into the contracts to help them get off the ground you know as though these like massive organizations were like burgeoning startups full of like bright-eyed people or something but um and now those leniencies are being used against people continuously as those streaming services are not the main way that people consume entertainment today and as though they're not you know continually reporting profits even though there are some bumps in the road and they're you know people are getting more fed up with them but I think that you're right that it's a, Tanisha, you're right that it's a matter of like, this is a conversation about how we want work to be. And when it comes to entertainment, I think that there's often this, this compulsion to separate out these jobs as though because they're, they're artistic jobs, they're both, you know, kind of too trivial to be worth the same level of attention or labor rights than, you know, other kinds of jobs, but also they're dream jobs. And so you should be willing to put up with anything and suffer in any way to have them. And in reality, the implications for the way that people are treated on film and TV sets and in writers' rooms also affect the way that everyone else is treated at work. And maybe in a more high profile way, because this is a very visible labor action, which we don't necessarily get that often. So I, I think that it's true that, you know, the players have changed and AI is part of the conversation now, as we've discussed, but it feels like, it feels strange to me how much of it seems to be like an echo of the the conversations that were happening, even when the last writer's strike occurred. Not that I was terribly sentient paying attention to it back then, but reading, reading the people's comparisons has been kind of fascinating in terms of, you know, the progress that we have or haven't made for both, you know, specifically WGA, but also just for labor rights in general. Yeah, yeah. And actually, The Last Writer's Strike, some people will tell you The Last Writer's Strike made reality television a, a much bigger thing and that maybe it made The Apprentice what it was and therefore made America what it was starting in 2017. So, you know, be careful, I guess, what you, what you do in these you situations. You never the president will be. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that means maybe Betty Gilpin will be the next president or Mrs. Davis. I don't know. One or the other. Um, I think that's my overall point, isn't it, Colin? That, like, the... It gets back to that thing. The invention of the airplane is the invention of the plane crash. That strike, you know, that new thing that we're throwing into into the works. If we have the idea that we can predict the outcome of that, as folks, you know, as folks who are pro writers and pro uh, creative and believe that being pro writers and pro creative is somehow, you know, more elevated than being pro capitalism. Um, uh, I think that um, that we're being a little delusional, you know. We're we're buying uh, the narrative that there is a right answer here. There isn't a right answer. Um, there is an outcome, um, and uh, and the strike creates an outcome, uh, and that outcome is always unpredictable. Um, I'm going to tell you. Uh, recently, I was walking down the streets uh, where Marie Antoinette. 
was um, was using the the people's money to buy wigs and dresses and gloating about it all um, conspicuously, doing what everybody's always done, <laughs> you know, who were who were in that position, you know, and she lost her head for it. Um, it didn't stop capitalism; it stopped Marie Antoinette. Um, and uh, and and um, the machine's going to carry on. Um, I love this idea of writers sitting in a room uh, working together and, you know, and how, you know, that is what we've known thus far. You know, uh, maybe we could open ourselves up to knowing something different. You know, maybe we could open ourselves up to putting a different kind of content out there uh, that has meaning and isn't just, you know, uh, moments that move through um, uh, that get away from us. So the um, one thing, you know, yeah, go, ahead, mean, go ahead. Yeah, somebody said, that, yeah. Something that Lindsay said that I think I want to just sort of re-elevate, which is the idea that if you work in culture, you have a dream job and therefore um, you should be happy for for the opportunity to do so, right? And I, I, I actually want to imagine that everybody gets to do a dream job because we are species on this planet who could do nothing. Right beyond feed yourself and have a place to, <laughs> to to be sheltered in. None of this is required for living, right? So, like, I you you often hear me say this when I'm on the show. Culture isn't just about like what we do to pass the time. It's also a mirror of what we do to pass the time. So the ways in which we within the unions, whether it's WGA or AEA or SAG or the Producers Guild, and on and on and on dream up how we spend our time, that we spend our time with dignity, that we spend our time with purpose, that we spend our time because the current system is capitalism, being able to attain the things through this system um, within monetarily, like that is the dream that we are trying to embody and investigate and talk about, not just through this very specific you know, engagement with the unions and the the owners versus the workers, but in the like in the story of a Mrs. Davis, right? The chaos and the absurdism of that story allows us to just go, oh, it's just chaotic and absurd, and I'm going to allow that to be what it is, as opposed to relational and connected, and that's the world in which I want to live in. I, I reject a little bit of the of the plane crash analogy. Uh, Rich, because I think it it steps into a reality that has been created over time, not a crea not a reality that must be moving forward. All right, Lindsay, uh, you have the last word here. Um, yeah, just I would I would agree, Tanisha, and I think that like yes, Rich, it's true that the machine continued to grind on over Marie Antoinette's headless body, but sort of in your own words, I don't think it's true that that means the machine is inevitable and that we just have to wait and see what's going to come of it. I think that. Even if it were true that, you know, AI could eventually be trained to create stories that are just as empathetic and compassionate and meaningful as what people can do, it just comes back to the question of, okay, but are we building a society for AI to thrive in or are we building a society for people to thrive in? Is, the, is, there, a, is there a point to erasing the kinds of work that people find rewarding to do and making it so that only jobs that exist are, you know, the ones that the people who moderate AI and get PTSD from reviewing tons of traumatizing content in order to remove it from AI's base of knowledge, are those the only jobs you want to exist? I don't 
think that that is a world where we're opening ourselves up to a new kind of content. And I don't think that unfortunately under capitalism, there's a different direction that it can go in that will be creative and generative, even if there are people who benefit and even if the consequences take longer to reach the most privileged people, ultimately it's the same as it was when people were, you know, trying to use AI to create beautiful portraits of themselves instead of artists. That's who it's going to come for first is people whose work they find rewarding and people whose work we already considered undervalued, but it can, you know, recreate everyone's job to be worse and more traumatizing and less well-paid. And that doesn't feel like a worthwhile endeavor for humanity to embark on when we could instead be trying to create a society that is built for humans and not machines. All right. That's bug for, for whatever. That was, that was better writing that you just did right there in your head than is in a lot of things that we talk about on this series. So that was really great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a little break right now. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to do some stuff. We're going to make some recommendations and things like that. All right, we didn't get to the ladies and gentlemen topic, so you're just on your own, blundering blindly through a sea of etiquette or something. Uh, Till next week. Maybe we'll do it next week. Uh, Got to thank uh, Mr. Dylan Ray. So he's in the booth right now as a technical producer today. Always great to have him here. I believe he's going off on another one of his adventures pretty soon, uh, and I will uh, miss his input. Uh, and we might get his input, actually. And Jonathan McPants is uh, the producer of The Nose pretty much all the time, and he is the producer today. We are going to make some recommendations right now with our wonderful panel and Tanisha Dugan. Why don't you lead those recommendations or endorse off. I love how whenever these start, like you'll call my name and my brain immediately goes down <laughs> on what I was going to endorse. But then it came rushing back. Okay. Okay, guys. So you know it's springtime and Tanisha talks about the same thing for a couple of weeks until it gets hot and then she moves on. Uh, we're still in gardening phase in my world. And so I'm going to recommend this is also connected to uh sort of non-union work. So sorry. Garden answer. It's a show on YouTube. It's a woman named Laura based in the sort of northeastern corner of Oregon. And she has an incredible garden. I have no idea what this woman does for a living, but she has acres of land and this beautiful home and these lovely children. And she like plants all day, um, but she's got great tips. So if you're into the, the gardening, um, she's your girl. Garden Answer on YouTube, regular spelling. Garden and then I'm okay. and then I'm also going to endorse Gentle Bull Shop, which is a, a vintage store on Pratt Street. This may be old news because she's been open since the end of the last quarter, so end of 2023. Um, but it's a fantastic kind of subversive but fun store. If you're a a cool mom or a bad mom or a or a I don't know How about a bad nun. Or a bad nun, this is the shop for you. So Gentle Bull Shop on Pratt Street in Hartford. Um, check it out. All right. Uh, Lindsay, what have you got for us? 
Um, so my first is the book An Ordinary Age by Rainford Stauffer, which goes to our conversations about uh, labor and what it has to look like. It's like a really interesting journalistic exploration of the way that we think about work and like hustle culture and how it negatively affects us and when it's okay to actually have achieved something not by an incredibly young age, but by an ordinary age. And uh, my second recommendation is also a book. It's the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. when you want to just read something that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm only, I'm only halfway through it right now. Um, so, you know, but I feel good about this recommendation because everyone loves it. So it's about um, a world constantly plagued by earthquakes that experiences repeated apocalypses. And there are people who have powers to control the earth, but they're subjugated by these other people who are afraid of them. And it's just like really incredibly fleshed out and, and beautiful and cool. So, yeah. All right. Also gives you some, some stuff to think about pertaining to labor, but um, you know, in a, in a more science fiction fantasy way. All right. Uh, so two books. And so Rich, uh, what are you going to talk about? Uh, I got two. Uh, one of them is uh, a play that's right now at Theater Works Hartford. It's called The Rembrandt. It's a it's a it's a lovely story, and in in a lot of ways, it's crafted not unlike this Mrs. Davis thing with these vignettes and transitions that happen uh, sort of unexpectedly in an almost sort of magical realism way. Um, but it pulls it off. You know, the, the stories are full of heart and full of relationship. And uh, it's part of theater works, apparently new approach to including technology and innovation uh, and future thinking in how they present uh, stories. Uh, very cool. It's called The Rembrandt. It's on until May 14th. Uh, the other thing is a really lovely and humbly written book it's not trying to be poetic it's not trying to be like here's all the fancy words and and beautiful imagery that I could paint but it tells a story honestly uh that's moving it's by Barbara McLean M-C-C-L-A-N-E and it's called Blessed Not Bitter it's a it's the very simple story of a very complicated uh ordeal uh that has been her life uh, to her kind of lovely deliverance worth the read. All right. So we're going to end here um, with a little quick reflection or a musical re reflection on somebody that Rich knew very, very well, better than I did. But although I did know Peter Good fairly well, uh, he was a wonderful, sweet man. I don't think we'll, any of us will meet a sweeter person than Peter Good, but he was also an amazing designer and an amazing visionary about the visual world. And he's maybe disproportionately famous for having designed the Whalers logo, uh, and, and which is an amazing logo. And long after the team is gone, people still cherish it. It uses negative space to create an H, stuff like that. So, um, so I don't know, rather than trying to say stuff about Peter and Rich would say have so much more to say, we thought we would just end with a certain song to remember him with. So here's Jill Sobiel, our very good friend. What can we do? You love me and I loved you. It was a good life. It was a good, good life. It was a good life. A good, good life. I sat a boom, boom, crash, crash underneath the overpass. Burning buildings, flying glass. A good life. On the day the earth stood still, we won't have to pay our bills. As the mud slides down the hill, a good life.
the good.